Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Today, we are returning back to one of our fan favorite cities of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, joined by colleagues from Thomas Jefferson Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Today, we have with us Drs. Sean Dickdan. Jay Clue and Priya Simlo. Folks, welcome to the show. So excited to learn from you today. Dan sends his regards. He wishes he could be here, but let's dive in. But before we do, tell the audience who you are. Hi, my name is Sean Dickdan. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at Thomas Jefferson. I'm so excited to be here. I also am in the podcast business, so I co-host a internal medicine medical literature review podcast with two former residents, now co-fellows at other programs. So I have a soft spot for podcasting and podcast recording, and I'm just really excited to be talking about our case today. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Priya Simlot. I'm a third-year fellow at Jefferson University Hospital here in sunny Philadelphia. My interests are in echocardiography, women's health, and preventative cardiology. Outside of cardiology, I had a pre-COVID interest in travel, but have developed a post-COVID interest in cooking and baking. Hey, everybody. My name is Jay Clue. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at Jefferson. Uh, I was also a resident and chief resident at Jefferson, so hold this place fondly in my heart. Very excited to be joining you guys. As I was talking to the crew before we started recording, I used to be a theater major, so I think that's my big interest, that I still love theater and am devastated that I can't go to any theater. Maybe in a year, we'll be able to go again, but glad to have other mediums to express ourselves. Thanks for inviting us. Hey guys, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. And Sean, it's such a pleasure to have a fellow podcaster on the show. For our audience, definitely check out MedLit Review. It seems like a tremendous resource to stay caught up on evidence-based medicine. We'll include the link to the MedLit Review show and website in the description below. So guys, we are just so happy to be back for the third time in what's turning out to become one of our fan favorite cities of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Before we get to the case, why don't you take us to your favorite hangout place so we can talk about some great cardiology. What do you guys have in store for us? So I originally proposed that we meet on Priya's rooftop because she has a pretty great view and great scenery from when we met there planning the case. But I think we decided on going to Independence Beer Garden instead. 
And from listening to a couple of previous episodes, it sounds like you guys fully support the local breweries and local beer gardens. So we're going to do Independence Beer Garden in Philadelphia, across from the Liberty Bell and the Scenic Greens that they have there. And we'll set the stage there. Sean, that sounds incredible. I'm not sure what kind of reputation we're making, but we're always definitely down for some local brew. So here we are in Independence Garden. We've got our beers in hand looking out in front of the greens. And why don't we do what we love doing when we're hanging out with friends and discuss some great cardiology? We have a case? Yes, we do. So our patient is a 65-year-old male with a history significant for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, status post an ablation, who presents to our emergency department with altered mental status. So filling in just a little bit more of his HPI story, His AFib ablation was done 21 days prior to presentation. He was initially fine after the procedure, but then about one week after the ablation started experiencing mild chest pain. He thought it felt like his prior episode of reflux, so he actually scheduled an appointment with his ENT. There, they performed a nasopharyngoscopy in the office, but there were no significant abnormalities noted on that scope. He left the appointment with the new prescription for a PPI, But he noted that this did little to improve his symptoms over the subsequent week and a half. Then, starting three days prior to the presentation, his family noted that he was more confused and lethargic, which culminated in him having difficulty getting up off the toilet on the day of presentation. His family found him slumped over and minimally responsive. He was brought to the emergency department where he had witnessed seizure and then was intubated for airway protection. In terms of the remainder of his history, really no other medical history other than this atrial fibrillation um, and no surgical history either. The only medications he takes are really just targeted at his atrial fibrillation. You have Pixaban, five milligrams twice a day, Adiltiazem, 120 milligrams daily, and Flecainide, 100 milligrams twice a day. And of course, the recently added PPI. He has an allergy only to amoxicillin. His family history is notable for hypertension and hyperlipidemia in his mother and hypertension in his father. There's no family history of atrial fibrillation, cancers, or any autoimmune diseases. Socially, he's a retired firefighter and lives with his wife in South Philly. He's independent with all of his ADLs. He drinks two glasses of wine nightly and is a former tobacco user with a 20-pack year smoking history. So Priya, so far, this case is bringing back all these flood of emotions from back in intern year of internal medicine residency training. Because I just remember the panic I used to get whenever I got that page, you know, patient being admitted for altered mental status, because I used to think like, oh my gosh, like, where do I even get started? You know, but then over time, you develop this sort of love for the detective nature of diagnostic medicine. And there's a mnemonic that I really enjoy from the clinical problem solvers. When approaching altered mental status, uh, what they use is MIST. M-I-S-T for metabolic causes, essentially just looking down the CMP, a blood gas, liver function, lactic acidosis, I for infection, S for structural, thinking about intracranial issues, and T for toxins. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's so helpful just having an initial quick, rapid evaluation for what could be going wrong. So far in this medical history, I'm not seeing things that would predispose to altered mental status, like a history of cirrhosis or CKD and so many other things. Medication-wise, There aren't any toxins that jump out to me right away. And in the same vein of the social history, there's no history of opiate use or benzodiazepines. So I think for all comers in general, we go back to our base rates and essentially basics of what is altered mental status and the evaluation thereof. 
But then also we bring it to our specific individual host and see, is there anything about his specific medical history and recent exposures that could lead to altered mental status? And so far, nothing is really clicking. We definitely need to get more information. But you know, I went from having palpitations whenever I heard altered mental status to getting excited about the detective work behind figuring out what's wrong. Yeah, that's a nice little short mnemonic. I think I learned one in med school that involved about 15 letters. And by the time you remembered what all those letters stood for, the discharge summary was ready to be written. So I like the short and to the point list. I love the mnemonic too and the clinical problem solvers, but I've tweaked it a little bit to make it more memorable for the students or whomever I teach it to. So I change it to moist because that's a little more unsettling and people tend to remember it. And I've just parsed out oxygenation from metabolic. So it's the same exact thing, but you add oxygenation and then hypercarbia going along with that. Moist it is, my friend. That's <laughs> <laughs> deeply disturbing. Yeah, there you go. You'll never forget it. Uh, I feel like it's stuck on me now. It's yeah, I think that's quite memorable. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let's start applying moist to our patient. What do we know about this gentleman? So we haven't given you a ton of information to go on. He's on some drugs, and some of his drugs are a little concerning. Flecainide certainly has its own catch of random symptoms that can sometimes pop up even after taking it for a while, if we're looking at some of the potential toxins that could be contributing to his case. I always get worried whenever I have a patient who was in AFib, and now they're not in AFib, and they've come in with altered mental status, that by making them not in AFib anymore, we've embolized something that was hiding, waiting to jump out at us. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jay. And it makes you wonder, one, has this patient been diligent with apixaban use? Because as you can imagine, there's a high risk of thromboembolism post-ablation for, we say, at least the first month, but probably is a risk that lingers on at a lower level beyond that time. And then with flaconide, actually, it didn't really ring a bell earlier, but as a sodium channel blocker, we remember that sodium channels are also present in our CNS as they are in the heart. And so with the flaconide toxicity, you can definitely get CNS symptoms like tremors, potentially seizures, and probably altered mental status also. So great pickup on those things. What more information do we have on this patient? So digging back through his chart a little bit more, we found out some additional information about his atrial fibrillation. Uh, He was first diagnosed in 2012 in the setting of an influenza infection. At that time, he was symptomatic with palpitations. Uh, The episode spontaneously resolved and no medications were started at that time. The next episode that we have documented for this patient happened in 2017. Again, interestingly, in the setting of an influenza infection. This time it was complicated by syncope and minor head trauma. Medical management was started with metoprolol, apixaban, and then diltiazem. Metoprolol was eventually stopped due to intolerance. He was telling his providers that he had bad dreams and couldn't take it anymore. So from then on, he was just continued on apixaban and increasing doses of diltiazem. His symptoms of presyncope continued, though no atrial fibrillation was documented in his office visits. So in August of 2018, an implantable loop recorder was placed, and this showed that his symptoms correlated well to his paroxysms of aphid. Moving forward to November of 2018, he was started on flecainide, but continued to experience his symptoms of presyncope and intermittent palpitations. So finally, in April of 2019, he was seen at our electrophysiology office for a second opinion regarding AFib ablation. We agreed that it was a reasonable option for him and that he should go forward with the plan, but he went to his original cardiologist to have that procedure done. So that's a great and very detailed history of his AFib. And, you know, I think it just reminds me how useful it is to really delve into how the patient got to where we are 
The history actually reminds me of a recent patient that one of my attendings was telling me about, Dr. Kaldun Tarakchki, who is the director of our telemedicine and digital health center. And he was just talking about the varied uses of wearable devices and digital health technologies in different aspects of cardiovascular care, but especially within EP, right? So he was referred to a patient who kept on having vague symptoms of maybe palpitations and dizziness. And despite a thorough evaluation with an EKG, a stress test, an echo, and a whole host of other testing, including, I think, a Holter monitor, they weren't able to arrive at any diagnosis. And the patient, unfortunately, was just diagnosed with anxiety. Thankfully, he made it to Dr. Tarachi's clinic and was prescribed using the Cardia device, which essentially just hooks on to a smartphone and has these leads that you can put your fingers on. And it's an FDA-approved device that can essentially show you a fairly reasonable rhythm tracing, not a perfect, but a reasonable algorithm for identifying the rhythm. And so this patient essentially was instructed to use the Cardia device whenever he had his symptoms, and in doing so, was successfully diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. And eventually wound up getting an AFib ablation. And so it's just such an incredible example of, I think, the kinds of things we're going to see more and more often with things like the Apple iWatch and Cardio device and so many other technologies. But I think, you know, this, uh, this patient got an implantable loop recorder, and which is a, a very useful technology in the setting, but just a nice uh, alternate example or alternate uh, technology that can be used as well. It's like you've looked up our content expert, Daniel Frisch, who is going to be joining the program later. He had a New York Times article uh, a couple of years ago about using the Cardia device uh, as an ambulatory monitoring tool. And it's not just Cardia. The Apple Watches can now give you a pretty decent lead one rhythm strip. Uh, so there's a lot of good options that don't just involve implantable loop recorders, which are great options, but not every patient wants one put in. Some patients are very in tune with their symptoms and can use those non-wearables that they can still transmit the data to a cardiologist or GP or electrophysiologist. It's just incredible. We had this whole essentially grand rounds, we call it tall rounds, on the utility or the growing place of wearable technologies and digital health in really all aspects. The parallels for electrophysiology are quite obvious for many of us, but then also heart failure, hypertension management, diabetes management, sports medicine. There are all these devices for essentially giving access to athletes throughout the states to a very limited number of centers and experts that practice sports cardiology. So I think tremendous opportunities for improving access to care with a whole host of other problems like validation studies and just essentially developing workflows to integrate them into our practice. But I think it's just a, it's such an exciting and expanding area, but don't mean to distract from this case too much. We'll definitely plan to do a series later on digital health because we're going to see it. You know, it's coming whether or not we, uh, we've thought about it. So if you get back to now, what did the patient look like uh, in the ED? His vitals on presentation to the emergency department were documented as a temperature of 103 degrees Fahrenheit or 39.4 degrees Celsius, a heart rate of 105 beats per minute, blood pressure of 165 over 79, respiratory rate of 20 with the SpO2 of 97%, but he was on the vent at that time. As far as his physical exam goes, it was notable for he was intubated, he was unresponsive, he had a present gag reflex, but no response to commands or to deep pain. His pupils were equal and reactive. There was no nuchal rigidity noted. His cardiac exam is unremarkable. He's tachycardic, but the rhythm is regular. He has a normal S1 and a normal S2. No murmurs, rubs, or gallops were noted at that time. His lungs were clear. A Foley catheter was placed. Um, his skin was warm and intact without evidence of skin breakdown or any rashes. So I just have to ask Sean, help us use the voice mnemonic to evaluate this patient at this point. 
Absolutely. The moist mnemonic has all the answers. We're still missing some important data points that we'll get to later with the labs, which will answer a lot of our metabolic questions. But I think there's a couple of easy things that we can move up and down in our list. So since the patient is vented, appears to have normal oxygenation, we can get rid of the O in our moist. That high fever and being peripherally warm really support the I in the moist, which is infection. The neuro exam doesn't really help me localize any stroke since the patient was on a pixaban. I am concerned a little bit that he might have had, you know, a large hemorrhagic stroke, which could cause something like this. The previous time course that he had leading up to this event may not fit with that so well, though. And then for RT, I think toxins, perhaps the flecainide, would cause this change in mental status, minimal responsiveness, need for event. The fever, though, is probably one of the more important pieces of data that we have, which points either to sepsis or to some other toxin that might be causing that. Yeah, I agree, Sean. I think the fever is such an important piece of the puzzle at this point. For flecainide, it'll be helpful to see the EKG. You know, is there QRS widening and conduction delays that were not present before? And then for Priya, just to contextualize his neurological exam and the fact that he wasn't responsive to deep pain, uh, was this patient like under heavy sedation at this point, peri-intubation? Was he just recently paralyzed? Or uh, is this truly off sedation? He is not responsive to deep pain because that really changes how we approach this. Totally agree. He was actually off sedation at the time of this exam. Wow. So extremely concerning. And then for fever, we consider, of course, infections, but we also consider other causes of pyrexia like serotonin syndrome or neuroleptic malignant syndrome that can also cause altered mental status with fever. Thyrotoxicosis would be another one to consider also. But again, we started off with altered mental status, and now we're doing the detective work with his vitals. Soon we'll have the EKG, the medication history, and all the other pieces of the puzzle. So let's fill in this puzzle and get more data. Absolutely. So in terms of other work that was obtained in the emergency department, he had an EKG done, which is demonstrated here. He was tachycardic, but really no other significant abnormalities were noted on this EKG. It's really not an EKG for flecainide toxicity. No, it doesn't speak to that either. Agreed. But it is an EKG for a successful AFib ablation. Oh, yes. <laughs> I should have led with that, actually. He's a normal sinus rhythm after his AFib ablation. I should include that. That's very true. <laughs> yes. The, that electrophysiologist did a great job. Yes. <laughs> it was great. He had a successful AFib ablation. He's in sinus tech. And of course, this isn't you know very sensitive by any means, but you know, just thinking about endocarditis and whatnot, there's no like PR prolongation and other conduction issues either. So that's helpful to recognize also. But yes, yeah, successfully ablated. Successfully ablated. Check. <laughs> Agreed. Um, so then in, in terms of other diagnostics, basic labs. So these are mostly notable for, um, we had a BMP drawn in the emergency department. He had a BUN of 37, creatinine of 1.8. Normal electrolytes, potassium of 4.2, the magnesium of 1.5. His LFTs are essentially normal. He had a CBC done as well with a white count of 7.1, hemoglobin of 13.4, and platelets of 186. He also had a lactate drawn in the emergency department, uh, which was mildly elevated at 2.8. And then we also have a chest x-ray that was done in the emergency department. This was taken after his intubation demonstrating just mild background pulmonary edema. He has an ET tube that's properly positioned above the carina. You can also see evidence of his implantable loop recorder on the chest x-ray as well. Yeah, absolutely. So with that thorough physical exam, a great EKG, and this chest x-ray and that lab data, I think we have a lot of data points where we can move things on our list. We already put the O for oxygenation pretty low 
we see here that he's not acidotic despite an elevated BUN and an elevated lactate. So that's probably not contributing significantly in terms of other metabolic changes. So he's not hyper or hyponatremic. The BUN is not significantly elevated. The glucose is not significantly elevated or lowered and the calcium is normal. So yeah, I think the M for metabolic is not looking like our culprit. Uh, I would move that down. The I for infection. So the thing probably arguing against it would be a normal white count, which certainly can happen in infections, uh, even in severe sepsis. But the normal white count is just something to consider. For our S, I think we still have some additional studies before we can effectively rule out something like a stroke. We already noted that he had a seizure, but I think, like we said in his clinical course, his symptoms were preceding that seizure. I think it'd be unlikely for a seizure to be explaining everything going on up until this point. And then for our T, so we don't have any evidence of flecainide toxicity on his electrocardiogram and really nothing else on the, on the labs that would suggest some other sort of toxin present. And even beyond just that, nothing from his clinical history to suggest that he was taking anything. Yeah, that was great, Sean. And at this point, we were to develop a problem representation, thinking about who the patient is, the demographic, uh, how old the patient is, their medical history, what the clinical syndrome is, and the onset of symptoms. I think what's jumping out to me in this clinical syndrome is that there are three main features, right? There is a fever, there's altered mental status, and there's a seizure. And all of those, putting that together, we think, okay, from the fever itself, is a fever essentially causing altered mental status and maybe decreased seizure threshold just because of the fever state in general? Or is there a CNS source of a fever or a CNS infection like meningitis or an abscess that could be explaining everything more parsimoniously? But at this point, I think we need to probably get head imaging to figure out, is there something localizing about the seizure? And if the patient has altered mental status, could the patient be in non-convulsive status epilepticus? And for the fever itself, we need to localize the source of the fever and whether that includes, again, brain imaging for an abscess or a spinal tap. Of course, the usual things like potentially abdominal imaging, if there's symptoms pointing towards it, bacterial cultures in the blood, a urinalysis. So I think we need to get more information to understand yeah, a possible CNS issue and also the etiology of the fever at this point. Yeah, I feel like if meningitis and encephalitis aren't at the top of your differential at this point, you, you've gotten too far away from your medicine certification exam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Agreed. So, so it sounds like a lumbar puncture is very, very much on the next list of things to do. Absolutely. And the admitting team agrees with you. And they did a lumbar puncture, was negative for signs of infection. They also worked them up with a urinalysis, which just had seven Highland casts, 14 WBCs, and a urine culture had no growth to date. They also checked blood cultures. And again, skipping ahead a little bit, they did come back positive, actually. He grew strep agalactesia in four out of four bottles. I feel like that's not our normal uh, strep bug we think of, the agalactiae, but it is, uh, you know, it's... Yeah hanging out in your oropharynx waiting to jump in. So imaging was done too, and especially in a patient with altered mental status like this, you're probably going to get the CAT scan before you even get the lumbar puncture. So the CT of his head showed multiple tiny foci of air throughout both cerebral hemispheres. The radiologists interpreted that as most likely intravascular air, though they couldn't say exactly if it was on the venous or arterial side or even both for this patient. And that, of course, gets followed up with an MRI when it was safe for the patient to get. And that uh, showed some restricted diffusion, again, in both uh, hemispheres of the brain. They also saw it in the posterior and medial left cerebellar hemispheres. 
And that was not as clearly of a demarcating objective sign, but was consistent with these recent infarctions that the CT scan was hinting at as well. It wouldn't be a good cardiology case if we didn't have an echo as well. And while his study was technically difficult, echo imaging was grossly normal. And again, Priya, I think, is going to talk about this a little bit more. From a cardiologist's point of view, whenever we hear about stroke, we're worried about a potential embolic stroke. So he did get a bubble study, as many of our stroke patients do. And there was no sign there of any atrial septal defect or relevant for this patient, no sign of intrapulmonary shunting either. Yeah, Jay, and I have sort of an approach to bacteremia. I don't necessarily have an approach to intravascular air in the brain. So when I think about bacteremia, I think, okay, you know, this patient is sick and they can crump at any time. And so we think about activating our sepsis protocol that all of our EMRs probably have a flag for at this point, you know, like fluids, checking a lactate, making sure it's downtrending with our resuscitation and instituting antibiotics, almost like door to needle time, but with the antibiotics. But then also in addition to treating it, trying to identify what the source is, because it's not normal to have bacteremia. We've got defense mechanisms and barriers against that. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we've obviously, with Priya on the case, we've done everything to take care of this patient, stabilize them, resuscitate them. But what is the source of the bacteremia? And that's another reason why the echocardiogram is helpful, that it doesn't sound like there was any vegetations or endocarditis. But I'm a little perplexed as to what the source of the bacteremia is for this patient, and also why you would have intravascular air in the brain vessels. It doesn't seem like a good thing to have. Yeah, it's very odd. And especially with an organism like strep agalacti, we always worry about the oral organism seeding valves. So another good reason to be taking a close look, at least starting with the TTE and taking a look. But yeah, the air, very perplexing. So how do you put that together? What's the next step in figuring this out? So basically trying to pull it all together, we really haven't found a good source for this infection. Like we've been talking about whether it was coming from a dental infection, we didn't see evidence of endocarditis on his transthoracic echocardiogram. So that's kind of what drove the team to get a CT scan of the chest to look for any sort of pathology there that could be contributing to his infectious presentation. And it's on the CT scan of his chest that they noted a small focus of air that was tracking along the left mainstem bronchus, just anterior to the esophagus. They thought it could represent a small amount of pneumomediastinum versus maybe just an outpouching of the esophagus. They didn't note, it, note any air tracking more cranially uh, along the mediastinal soft tissues. And although they couldn't definitively identify a soft tissue defect in the esophagus, putting everything together, given his recent atrial fibrillation ablation, his sepsis presentation, the concern for CNS involvement, the finding of air in the mediastinum was concerning for a possible atrioesophageal fistula from his AFib ablation. I feel like there's only a few areas you can think of whenever you see concern for air emboli, like how can air get into your bloodstream? Having vascular access is always one way that could happen. And this guy did have an intravascular procedure, but that was three weeks ago, kind of way outside of our time frame for infection or air to be coming from that procedure. And so then you basically have to think of your GI tract as being a source of air and some kind of communication between really anywhere in your GI tract and your bloodstream or some kind of communication between your probably trachea. It'd be hard to get from one of the bronchi into the blood, but that's where you have to look. And I think a CAT scan is probably your best ally there. Yeah. And sort of reflecting back on all the different data points that we had, I think Priya, you summarized it really well. When you look at the clinical course of how the patient presented, which is I would say subacutely on the order of 
what was it about three weeks where you start with some mild chest discomfort and that progresses, becomes worse, is refractory to just some basic therapy, in this case a PPI, and then gets progressively more encephalopathic to the point of having a seizure. It really does speak to a subacute presentation of something. In this case, probably the compounded effects of sepsis and then some effect of these small air embolism and combining air embolism and sepsis. This CAT scan really, I think, supports what the team decided, which is an atrioesophageal fistula. And the next steps in management are probably going to be very complicated. And if we do make that diagnosis, I think it uh, warrants us stepping back and realizing that um, you know this is a very serious complication. It's a complication that has a pretty high mortality associated with it. And acknowledging that and communicating that clearly with the patient's family about how very sick he is. Yeah, everything I know about atrioesophageal fistulas is that it is bad news, right? I mean, we do everything we can to avoid it, including things like esophageal temperature monitoring during AFib ablations with data that can go either way. But, you know, this is definitely a feared and dreaded complication because left unmanaged, it carries a very high mortality. But how did you approach this patient, given that everything essentially at this point points to the presence of atrioesophageal fistula? I think at this point, it was essentially a presumptive diagnosis. Obviously, given the complexity of his medical case, a lot of different teams got involved. GI was involved. Cardiac surgery was involved. Cardiothoracic surgery was involved. Obviously, cardiology as well. And so with these complicated cases, it just took a coordinated effort to try to take good care of him. He was admitted to the neuro ICU for a couple of days. His neurostatus was getting progressively worse for the first about week of his admission. They actually approached the family about potentially going palliative, just given the severity of his neurologic insult. Then luckily, things seemed to be turning around to the point that surgery was offered to him. There's always the question of whether you can get the gastroenterologists involved and potentially consider EGD or stent, but there's probably some understandable hesitation in pursuing an EGD here, just given the high-risk nature of his injury. So he ultimately ended up going to the OR in a coordinated case between cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery for repair of both the left atrium and the esophageal injury. We actually were able to get a picture of his case from the OR, which we have here. And you can see the probe dipping posterior that LA right into the esophageal defect that was seen in the OR. Yeah, these images are fantastic. And for our audience, definitely take a look at the blog. So you can take a look at the images from the CT brain, the MRI brain, the CT chest, and these intra images. And Priya, I enjoyed reading about atrioesophageal fistula today and thinking about uh, this discussion. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding is that in, a typical EGD would essentially be contraindicated because you would have to insufflate the esophagus, which carries a very high risk of that air leaking into this defect that we see on these intra images and seeping into the left atrium and causing essentially worsening uh, stroke, embolic stroke burden that can be rapidly fatal. And then all the data that I saw the, eso- the use of esophageal stents has very questionable data, and I think a majority of it were patients, when compared to surgery, did not do well, either died or had other complications. Of course, the caveat that there's probably a substantial degree of selection bias, that uh, these patients were probably not operable candidates. So this is such a great example of multiple teams coming together, gastroenterology, cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, thoracic surgery, neurology, critical care to do the right thing for this patient, make a difficult diagnosis and uh, challenging, complicated surgery. And thankfully, the patient sounds like they did fairly well, all things considered. All things considered. Yeah, he did pretty well. He recovered from surgery well and was actually able to be discharged from the hospital to rehab. Unfortunately, he was still on medication for his atrial fibrillation. Part of the reason that our patient 
even sought out a second opinion to consider ablation, like many patients do, is for the hope to eventually get off medications. Obviously, that kind of opens a whole Pandora's box about the medications for atrial fibrillation. But this patient ultimately left on apixaban and carvedilol. He's now living at home with his family, and he still has residual neurologic defects, but seems to be doing okay. Yeah, that's just incredible, considering how high the mortality tends to be for this condition. And you know, again, I learned today that the risk of developing atrioesophageal fistula, depending on the series, is anywhere from a little bit less than 0.1% to 0.25%. So it's relatively rare, but again, absolutely feared. And the precautions we take include things like modifying the catheter ablation technique. Of course, we're using thermal injury, either RF ablation or cryoablation potentially to burn and ablate areas around the left atrium. And of course, the left atrium is right in front of that esophagus. And so if that thermal injury transmits to the esophageal wall, they can cause injury in, I think the exact mechanism is poorly understood, but my reading was there are three putative mechanisms. One is just direct thermal injury to the mucosa. Secondly, you can actually injure the arterial supply, the tiny and vulnerable capillaries of the esophagus. And so when you injure those, you can also get ischemic injury. And then thirdly, you can injure the vagal nervous supply to the esophagus, the polar sphincter, and the gastric antrum. And so in so doing, you can develop esophageal and gastric dysmotility, lower esophageal sphincter incompetence, and end up getting reflux esophagitis. And so that's another mechanism of injury. And as you develop esophageal injury, there's sort of a progression between esophagitis, esophageal ulceration, esophageal perforation that can communicate into the mediastinum, potentially esophagopericardial fistula that can lead to communication with the pericardial space, and then esophagoatrial or atriosophageal fistula that we see in this patient here. And so the things that we can do to mitigate those are, as we're doing thermal injury for ablation, monitor the temperature within the esophagus to try to decrease the degree of injury that we're transmitting, adding antacids, which again, the data is sparse, but I think a lot of people practice the use of antacids, either PPI or H2 blockers. And then in higher risk patients, maybe even doing an EGD early on to detect the presence of an ulcer post-ablation to risk stratify and maybe even modify their monitoring. But really incredible disease process that thankfully this patient did well. And it's an interesting disease process too, because when anything with fistula formation, it's going to take a few weeks to actually take an effect. So when we think of periprocedural complications, if you have a patient who just had an AFib ablation and they become acutely hypotensive, then you're going to be worried about tamponade, something that could have immediately happened. But tricky complications like this that take two weeks to a month to actually develop and then become symptomatic can make the diagnosis a lot trickier, I think. Yeah, Jay, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that time delay can definitely make it challenging, especially because for the ablation, the patient is under the care of an electrophysiologist, but then they may leave the care of the electrophysiologist and go back to their primary care doctor or go back to you know the, whichever center maybe refer them to the EP lab. And that person may or may not be as knowledgeable about the nuances of post-AFib ablation complications. And another one that I imagine is probably under-recognized, again, because of the same time delay, is PV or pulmonary vein stenosis. And I was wondering if you guys had any comments about that. Yeah, absolutely. Pulmonary vein stenosis is another very rare complication. I was talking to some of our electrophysiologists here, and they've never had a case of it, but it is another one of those feared complications. So pulmonary vein stenosis, that would be something that you're not going to see for at least two months and up to a year after ablation would you first recognize it. And it's going to be a classic kind of heart failure presentation. It's going to be a patient with new onset dyspnea. They might have some hemoptysis. They're going to have a cough. 
Um, or it might be that patient that has some entrapment in the lungs and keeps getting pneumonia again and again. You dig around in their history, you see they had an ablation half a year to a year ago. That should trigger some suspicion there. A CT scan is usually enough to find the diagnosis. You might need to take a look yourself because it might not be the topmost thing on the radiologist's radar. MRI is also going to be able to tell you that diagnosis as well. Treating pulmonary vein stenosis, a tricky thing because it's so rare, but stenting right now is the standard of practice for that. But just because of how rare it is and how good we are at avoiding getting deep into the pulmonary vein with these ablations, uh, not a lot of centers are very experienced with placing a stent in the pulmonary vein itself. And that gives us a good time to talk about some of the other, maybe more common complications we see with patients with AFib ablation. And this generalizes to a lot of other EP procedures as well. Of course, any ablation, VTAC ablation, AVNRT ablation, accessory pathway ablation, all these complications are going to be pretty similar. By far, the most common complications are going to be related to access site issues. The same kind of complications you're going to see in the cath lab, especially considering like a right heart catheterization, since that's essentially what we're doing. Very rarely do you get arterial access for an electrophysiologic procedure. But you worry about infection, although that's very rare with how good we are at sterilizing things. And you worry about other access site issues that we're all pretty familiar with. Some of the weirder ones for electrophysiology and the more deadly problems are going to be things like tamponade. Tamponade accounts for about 25% of the mortality in patients who have had AFib ablation. And tamponade is, again, going to be due to direct injury of the myocardium, creating a communication with the pericardial sac. And as far as treating it goes, fortunately for us from a general cardiology standpoint, the treatment is the same as any other cause of tamponade. So you would want to make sure it's hemodynamically significant before draining it. And you can go ahead and drain it right then and there. A question I've had from a lot of my medical residents for patients who have periprocedural tamponade is they worry that if we drain that blood that's pooled up in the pericardium, are they just going to continuously pour out blood? But usually very quickly after the tamponade is developed, it has, for lack of a better word, tamponaded the source of where the blood was coming out. So it is safe to drain as soon as you recognize it. And a lot of electrophysiologists are trained in doing pericardiocentesis in the event that they need to in an emergency. And Jay, I just have to say that I feel like electrophysiologists are just so incredibly skilled in getting pericardial access because not only do they have to do this for periprocedural tamponade, a hemopericardium, but they also do this all the time for epicardial ablations when the epicardial space may or may not be descended open. So when I think about electrophysiologists and their approach to getting pericardial access under fluoro and ultrasound, they're just so masterful in that skill. So really incredible to see that happen. Yeah, definitely. And especially now that ultrasound is becoming more and more of something more well-trained in general fellowship, not they don't even necessarily need fluoroscopic guidance to do the pericardial drainage. Another thing to think about from a mortality perspective is a direct thrombotic stroke directly after the procedure from a thrombus that was basically hiding out in the left atrium waiting to pop out or in the left atrial appendage. So that is another concerning thing to think about. And we've already talked about atriosophageal fistula, our case here, obviously, and that makes up about 16% of mortality causes from AFib ablation. So just to make a plug for AFib ablations, this extraordinarily rare complication still makes up 16% of the mortality. So overall, a very safe procedure. One thing I think that's important to point out about ablations and electrophysiology as a whole, we're all very used to working in these 
academic centers with every specialty in the hospital. ORs ready to jump at the ready. Everyone there ready to help if you need it. But a lot of ablations are done routinely in smaller community centers that may not even have cardiothoracic surgery there available to jump in if needed. And these centers may not do as many ablations as we do in our major academic centers. So there is concern that as these lower volume centers and these smaller hospitals get EP labs up and running, that the risk of these complications could increase. So it's something to watch out for, especially when you're at a center. I'm sure your center is like ours, where we get a lot of outside hospital transfers and transfers from the community, stuff we need to perk our ears up for and keep our eye out on. So one other thing I'd point out, just as a good practice for electrophysiologists, um, more and more of them are using intraprocedural echocardiography. Some of that's by way of a transesophageal echocardiogram. A lot of electrophysiologists also use intracardiac echocardiogram, or ICE, which is just an echo probe attached to a catheter that goes through the venous axis site. And that provides a direct throughout the procedure visualization on what's going on with the heart. Sometimes you need that echocardiography to visualize where your probe is. I think one thing a lot of people don't realize about how ablations are performed, especially if you're not coming from the cardiology side of things, is since it's a right-sided access procedure and most of the work we're doing is in the left atrium, we have to get to that left atrium somewhere. So in order to do so, we actually have to puncture through the intraatrial septum. And that is a kind of a large needle that they stick through the interatrial septum. And you have to put a decent amount of pressure on that septum to get it through. So that septal puncture carries some risk of creating a tamponade situation. And that's almost always done under ultrasound guidance at this point. And that puncture can also create a atrial septal defect there. And one study I read showed that atrial septal defect can form up to 20% of the time, but it's very rarely a clinically significant finding. But don't be surprised if you get an echo on a patient who had an AFib ablation a few weeks ago and you see that they have an ASD now. Unless they're having symptoms, though, it's not really something you have to worry about. The best way to avoid complications are to work in a good lab using ablation software, using good mapping software, working with a good team, including the device reps who are extremely helpful for us, working with a good anesthesiologist, knowing echocardiography yourself or working with an anesthesiologist that's comfortable with echocardiography, and just staying up to date with devices and tools that help us out. You talked about esophageal temperature probes hugely important. And I don't think anybody would do an RF ablation these days without having that esophageal temperature probe there monitoring to look out for getting uh, heat transmitted to the esophagus. Jay, I love this teaching that you're giving us about all the various ways in which AFib ablation can go bad or go awry. And this isn't unique to AFib ablation, right? It's just humbling to think of the harm that the things we do can give to our patients. And when I used to consent patients, I used to say, oh, this is going to help you. And uh, there's this teeny, tiny, small chance that this will happen, but this almost never happens. But then the truth is, um, these things do happen. And after uh, having seen, you know, complications that are, uh, you know, at some point unavoidable, if you do a thousand procedures and the complication rate is 0.1%, you'll see one complication. I've honestly changed the way in which I approach consent because these procedures, even the medications we do have pluses and minuses, right? Everything, all the interventions, therapeutics, that we provide for our patients, we do so with incredible thought and deliberation. We do so with important indications that are data-driven and evidence-based. 
And we go back to the Hippocratic Oath that we took, but with the hope that we will do something positive for our patient, right? Improve their symptoms, improve their longevity, improve their quality of life, their ability to interact with their loved ones in a meaningful way. But as one of my co-fellows says, there's no free meal, right? And so even if you can do everything possible in terms of training, proper technique to minimize complications, but it usually doesn't go to zero. And you know, today's case was a case of atrioesophageal fistula. And especially when there's a procedural skill involved, oftentimes we see that complication rates reduce and outcomes improve with experience. But AE fistula occurrence is one of the rare things that actually doesn't change with more experience or a difference between a low volume or high volume center. And so there is, you know, a basement below which we can't get sometimes when we try to decrease the complication. So again, just very humbling to consider and important for all of our audience to really approach consenting a patient with a very genuine and sincere shared decision-making because we can't minimize these things. Even though the risk may be minimal, it's still a real risk. With that, I want to thank each of you for taking your time to hop onto CardioNerds and teach us today. Really incredible case. Thankfully, there was a good outcome, but really important teaching points to consider in terms of um, the way we approach consent and procedures specific to AFib ablation. So, Priya, Sean, and Jay, thank you so much for spending your time with us. At this point, I'd love to hear from you guys what you enjoy about cardiology. Why did you decide to dive into this incredible field? And what makes your hearts flutter about training at Thomas Jefferson? I think I want to start by just saying thank you, Amit. This is so much fun. I love doing cases like this. You mentioned the clinical problem solvers earlier, and I love their podcast and your podcast, mostly for going through cases in a really interesting systematic way that makes it really approachable and digestible. And it's an honor for me and an honor for us to be here. So I think we thank you. What makes my heart flutter about cardiology is, well, I'll say ECGs because I love ECG interpretation, but I think in general, we have such a large scope over so many things, you know, everything from experts in imaging, anticoagulation use, very specialized procedures. There's literally something for everyone. There's so much more for us to learn even today in our discussion, we talked a lot about basic internal medicine. Like I found myself checking the calcium to make sure that wasn't affecting their mental status. And I feel like, you know, if you're going to be a cardiologist, you have to be a really good internist because it just captures so much of medicine. And then Thomas Jefferson specifically has been my home for the past couple of years. I think I forgot to mention that I did residency here too. So Jay was one of my chiefs. He did a great job. But yeah, I loved being here as a resident. I think the attendings are really approachable. I think I get a lot of personal teaching. I've had attending sit uh, with me in the back of the cath lab and draw through pressure volume diagrams after cases just to go through things. And I've really appreciated that in my first couple months as a fellow here. Yeah, agreed with Sean completely. Thank you for having us. It's been a real pleasure. I think what got me interested in cardiology at first was I really love critical care, but I really hate pulmonology. So this is, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> we love our pulmonary. Okay? We, we, we would be lost without them. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, otherwise, what would oxygenate the blood that we pump? Right. <laughs> well said. <laughs> but I've been in love with cardiology since as a med student. Uh, once I decided I didn't want to do surgery, I did an electrophysiology rotation and was just like in awe and in love with it. And that's still my interest. So it's held up for that many years. So I love that. And I've grown to appreciate the rest of cardiology as well. Heart failure is fascinating and all the neurohormonal interactions that come into play there, the new medical therapies and 
physical therapies we have for these patients. Amazing. It's such a cool field. There's so much innovation every month. You just have to stay on top of the leading edge or you'll get behind. And that just makes me excited to see what's new every day. Absolutely love the specialty. And love Thomas Jefferson too. Again, I'm a little biased. I've been here for a while. But I think we have what you'll get out of any cardiology program. We'll get a phenomenal training. We have a very flexible program. Our third year is basically whatever you want to make it. I think that's a really appealing aspect. And Priya might be able to speak to that more since she's in the thick of it now. But I think the biggest selling point of Thomas Jefferson as a whole, and especially our cardiology program, are just the people who are here. It's an amazing group of fellows. It's just fun to hang out with them all the time. They're super supportive. They teach constantly. It's just a great group. And to any of the folks who interviewed with us this year, I think we have to apologize for turning all of our virtual happy hours into just us fellows talking to each other because we really just like being around each other and just talking about our lives. I have to 100% agree with everything that's been said so far. Amit, thank you so much for having us on this podcast. It's been such a wonderful experience to discuss this case with you and learn so much just from this discussion. In terms of why cardiology... It's so hard to describe why you end up picking a specialty, but I feel like that's almost a visceral reaction. You just love the heart. It's the best organ in the body. Within the field of cardiology, there's so much physiology that I find super interesting. And I just like that there's so many different avenues you can take in terms of career direction within cardiology. If you like imaging, there's echo, there's CMR, there's CT. If you like critical care, cardiology patients come in very sick. And if critical care is not your thing, we need people on the preventative side as well and doing research to further the field as well. So I just like that there's so many different ways you can get involved in cardiology. So for me, I think that's what makes my heart flutter about cardiology. As far as why Jefferson, I am not quite in the same boat as these guys. I did go to medical school at Jefferson. I left for a few years of residency and missed it so much I came back. I know everybody always says that the people are what make the program, but I have to say that the people at Jefferson really made it such a wonderful place to train. My co-fellows, so supportive. We're always looking out for each other. If people need coverage for a call or anything like that, people are always willing to step up and help out. And then the attendings are so approachable and really do like teaching. I agree with what's been said before that all of the attendings are more than willing to sit down with you one-to-one. They like to hear from you and prefer to hear from you if you're having any issues through your training or if you have any questions. And also it's in Philadelphia, which is one of the greatest cities in the world, I believe. So it's really a wonderful place to train. (laughs) You guys are just amazing. So incredible to have you on. And Dan Ambinder is messaging me right now. He sends his love, his regards. He's modeling good cardiology fellow work-life balance and is spending time with his incredible family as we speak right now. So power to him. And Sean, to your point earlier, you definitely agree, hashtag internist first. And the CP solvers were in a big way a part of our own origin story. It's actually Reza Manesh who essentially called me and Dan up and said, hey, you guys just have to make a cardiology podcast. It's so much fun and you get to do something special and do it in a way that really brings people together. And you know, when we talk about learning and case-based education, really it's not about us. It's about people like you guys who take the time to prepare such incredible cases and teaching and donate your evenings to this effort. So the cardinals are uh, nothing if not for the community at large. And uh, we're really excited about everyone who's been contributing and thankful for everyone who's been enjoying. So just have to say, really, it was such an incredible treat to learn from you. Thank you for spending time with us. Totally couldn't agree with a better way to enjoy Philadelphia than the local brews. Thanks, guys.
Thank you. you Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. You guys have been a joy to listen to. And it's been awesome hearing from our colleagues at other programs throughout the fall. A lot of fun. Uh, It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our ECPR, our content expert, Dr. Daniel Frisch, one of our favorite electrophysiologists, someone I've gotten a chance to know very well over the last few years, a good personal mentor to me and the PI on a lot of my research projects. He is someone I will text EGMs to until he stops texting me back. And he does a ton of RF ablations and will be an excellent source for discussion for this case. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Dan Frisch from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in a case that we dealt with here at at our institution. I'd also like to thank Jay, Priya, and Sean for their excellent case presentation and analysis. You guys make it very easy for me to sleep at night when I know you're taking care of my patients. So thank you guys in general for your clinical care and certainly for your care in this case. By way of introduction, Again, my name is Dan Frisch. I've been on faculty here at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital since 2007. This was the first job I got after completing my electrophysiology fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I was at the same institution for residency and general cardiology fellowship as well. Prior to that, I graduated from NYU Medical School in the year 2000. As far as this case is concerned, This is a patient that I got to know quite well personally before his ablation, and I've gotten to know him, of course, since the outcome. The patient and his wife came to me, as you mentioned, for a second opinion about whether or not to get an AFib ablation, and I found them to be very thoughtful, genuine people. The conversation I had with them, like I do with most people, is to really weigh risks and benefits and to offer perspective on what AFib ablation can do to a person's health. There has been some data in the literature in the last few years that say that there are health outcomes beyond quality of life, such as reduction in heart failure, possibly some reduction in in mortality depending on the subgroup. But I would offer that really what AFib ablation does for people is it gives them the best possible quality of life option that we have available for this arrhythmia. The medicines work okay, but medicines have side effects and there's an expected rate of failure after starting an antiarrhythmic drug. What's been nice about the ablation option is that it's better than any medicine that we can offer someone and the results in terms of reduction of AFib seem to be better than anything else that's out there. When I was in fellowship, AFib ablation was still sort of new. This was in the early part of the 2000s. And now that we're in the year 2020, it really has become a pretty standard option for patients with symptomatic AFib. That being said, I do a lot of AFib ablations. My colleagues do a lot of AFib ablations, and it's a routine procedure for us. However, even things that are routine can carry risk, and what you heard about in this case is that the risk can really be quite devastating uh, in some circumstances. I would say that of the complications that can happen surrounding an AFib ablation, an atrioesophageal fistula is probably the worst of the lot. Of course, any complication that harms a patient is, is terrible, but there 
is a certain helplessness with this particular complication because it's such a lethal event when it does happen. On some level, it's easier to deal with a complication that happens right in front of you or during a procedure such as a vascular access issue or even tamponade because the patient is there, you're there, and you have full spectrum of therapeutic options right at your fingertips, whether or not that's a needle to do a pericardiosynthesis, strong fingers to hold a vascular access site, or the ability to pick up the phone and call a colleague, such as a cardiac surgeon, when the case arises. Once a patient is off the table, of course, we still pay close attention to how they're doing in recovery, but frequently they're not immediately in front of us at that time. The unfortunate thing about an atrioesophageal fistula is that it doesn't show up immediately. It doesn't even show up in the first week. Usually there's this vulnerable period about two to four weeks out from an ablation procedure where we have to be at heightened awareness uh, that this could be a problem. Now, the other thing that can sometimes be a problem is that it's such a rare complication that not everyone else within the universe of healthcare is aware of this rare complication for these patients who've recently had an AFib ablation. As you mentioned earlier in the podcast, sometimes patients come from other institutions or from other physicians who may not remember exactly what date the person had their AFib ablation or know exactly how far out they were from the time of symptoms. Or perhaps, like in this case, if a patient shows up to another specialist, like an ear, nose, and throat doctor, with GERD symptoms, the ENT may not even think to ask, did you recently have an ablation procedure or something that could put you at risk for an esophageal injury? So I've tried to take the approach of educating patients about symptoms to look out for in that vulnerable time frame, in that two to four week period after an ablation term. And what I tell them is that any chest pain that got better but starts to get worse any GERD that starts to get worse, any fevers one week or more out from the time of the ablation procedure needs an immediate call to our office to determine what the next step would be. I'm happy to say that for all the stress and anxiety over these symptoms and follow-up, we have not had anyone at our institution who had this complication, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen and that it's totally avoidable in any circumstances. I've certainly had patients in whom I've hit the panic button and brought them immediately into the ER, done a CT scan, called a surgical colleague, called a gastroenterology colleague for assistance, and luckily they've all been negative evaluations. I even had one patient that after the third CT scan, the radiologist asked me to call him personally before ordering another one. But anyway, what I'd say the uh, the team did right when this patient showed up is they immediately did get a CAT scan because that really is the test of choice to find out if there's a tract of air that connects the esophagus back to the atrium, and they were able to make the diagnosis that way. Again, also as mentioned, the GI docs really want nothing to do with with us and with endoscopy because they know that if they insufflate air, they can make things catastrophically worse in these situations. On one hand, 
this patient did show up with neurologic and infectious consequences of having the fistula. In some sense, he's lucky that he didn't show up with the reverse problem, which would be blood leaking into the esophagus causing upper GI bleeding, because that is a setup for for catastrophic bleeding and perhaps tragic and quick demise in that situation. I do agree that this patient was lucky that he had the full availability of neurologic intensive care doctors, of cardiothoracic surgeons, thoracic surgeons, and cardiologists who were able to help him and help him survive this complication. Unfortunately, in follow-up, he has been doing okay, but not great. He's not where he was neurologically before the procedure, and he is no longer working. Not that he would have at his current age, but he does require home health care, and there is extra work that his wife has to do to ensure that he's able to complete his daily activities and stay safe. So this complication has had a long-term effect on, on him and his family, again, which is very unfortunate considering he had symptomatic AFib and came in looking primarily for a way to feel better. I'm not sure that that really happened in this case. So perhaps to repeat myself and repeat some of the points that have already been made, I would say that for the most part, AFib ablation, it's a common procedure, and I really think that it's here to stay. There are certainly going to be some recovery issues for any time a patient comes in for an invasive procedure, back pain, perhaps bruising at the access site, other aches and pains. And unfortunately, there are some rare but very real complications that can happen with this procedure. The top three that I tell patients about and that we are vigilant about looking for are tamponade first. That's probably the most common one. Second would be thromboembolism, although that's mitigated by the use of high doses of heparin and immediate anticoagulation right after the procedure, as well as a pre-procedural TEE and intra-procedural ICE, intracardiac echo. And the final complication would be injury to another structure within the patient's chest. So we focused on this case about atrioesophageal fistula, which again, I think is by far the worst thing that can happen to people. But I would mention that there are other structures that run very close to the atria, like the phrenic nerves. So phrenic nerve paralysis is a possible problem. Even direct lung injury is a potential problem. And as Jay mentioned earlier, pulmonary vein stenosis is a possibility too. One thing I will say about pulmonary vein stenosis is that very early in the AFib experience, people used to ablate much deeper in the pulmonary veins compared to where we've been ablating for the last decade, decade and a half. So we are able to minimize that risk of pulmonary vein stenosis. A couple of additional teaching points that I would make are one of the great things about cardiology is we have a lot of expert consensus statements and guideline documents that are out there, which are for the most part very thoughtfully organized and informative. And I would encourage anyone who really wants to take a deep dive into 
any particular aspect of cardiology to start with one of the guideline documents. There is one on AFib ablation, which has hundreds of references and is a good go-to source for trying to understand this particular issue, atrioesophageal fistula and others, to educate yourself about it before talking to patients. Another point that I would make is that the technology constantly evolves for ablation and I'm sure for most other procedures that we do in cardiology. And there are always advances in efficacy, but also in safety that are worth paying attention to. Um, it's possible that radiofrequency and cryothermal therapy may not be the only ablation options in the future. There's a technology which involves electroporation, which is gaining some popularity, and there's some data for it, and that may, may be the future. The advice I would give to an on-call cardiology fellow in this case is to have a sense of what the emergent implications from AFib ablation can be, and especially to know that the two to four week time frame after an ablation is when the manifestation of an atrioesophageal fistula would become present. So a patient who shows up with new neurologic symptoms, sepsis type picture, or severe chest in that window really needs to be considered very quickly for the possibility of an AE fistula. I think if podcasts like these continue and listen to them, that we will educate our colleagues and trainees in a very effective way. And I really want to congratulate you guys for this effort and for explaining these issues so eloquently. And thank you for inviting me to share my anecdotal insights. You summarized the data so well that I feel like I'm simply color commentary on top of a very complete product that you guys already put out. So thanks again from Thomas Jefferson University. And now for a quick word about the Thomas Jefferson Cardiology Fellowship Program from our very own program director, Dr. Greg Marhefka, the head of the CCU and the person that I call overnight at two in the morning with all of the CCU admissions. Good afternoon. My name is Greg Marhefka, and I'm the program director for the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship here at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. I'd like to thank our fellows for putting together that nice case presentation and I'd like to tell you a little bit about our fellowship program. I would describe to you that Jefferson's strength is really our clinical cardiology training. We have seven general fellows per year, two of whom are in a combined community tract with one of our big suburban hospital affiliates, Abington Jefferson. We have two interventional structural cardiology fellows. We have two electrophysiology fellows. And after a several-year hiatus, we're recruiting again for an advanced heart failure and transplant fellow for 2021. We're located right here between the two rivers, the Schuylkill and the Delaware River, in the heart of Center City, probably the best location of all the area hospitals. And one of the big questions I get is where do our fellows go after they finish training? So I looked back at the last 17 years of trainees, and you can see that 55% went on to subspecialty training. And I listed here some of the centers that they've gone to within interventional and structural heart disease, EP, 
as well as advanced heart failure and transplant. We've had a couple go on to some advanced imaging. And about nine years ago, we had one fellow actually do a clinical research fellowship where they did two years of residency, two years in the lab, in a translational lab, and then two years of fellowship. And then beyond any fellowship training, what have our fellows done? And again, looking back at the last 17 years, about a third of our fellows go on to a career in academic cardiology. And I define that by fellows who go on to uh, a program that has a cardiology fellowship program. And then the other two thirds are in private practice, most of whom are here in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area. But you can see we've got fellows at this point all over the country from over the last 17 years. Some of the interesting facets of our program, one of the other faculty pointed this out to me, which I quite frankly never thought of, but in the last 10 years, 19 of our 60 fellows were women. That's 32%. And if you look at a recent summary of what the average is for cardiovascular training, it is still a male-dominated field, and 24% is the average. Likewise, if you look at our current faculty, nine of our 39 faculty are women. That's 23%. And the U.S. average is still lagging behind at 16%. Some other facets of our program, we do have the opportunity to go on to a master's in public health. And a couple of our fellows over the years have chosen to do that. You can do it concurrently with your fellowship. We've got a cardiogenic shock team, a pulmonary embolism response team, as well as a new pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure service, which is a combined service with our advanced heart failure docs with the pulmonary division. And some of our future assets, there is, uh, beginning this month, a maternal field medicine high-risk cardiovascular clinic, which will be staffed in the MFM office by one of our advanced heart failure and transplant docs, as well as one of our senior fellows rotating through. Soon, we'll be having cardiac PET available to us, which has not yet been available, but hopefully very, very soon, we'll finally be here at Jefferson. We plan to recruit for a cardio-oncology position. And Likewise, to meet a growing need of the growing number of, ad, of adult congenital heart disease survivors, our plan is to develop a subdivision within adult congenital heart disease. And we've actually got a coordination now with Nemours and DuPont in Delaware. So that's just a little bit about our program. We are here again in Center City, Philadelphia. And if you would like to learn more about our program, please feel free to reach out. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Again, interestingly, in the setting of an influenza infection.
This time it was complicated by, can you guys hear a dog barking in the background? No. Damn it. <laughs> hold, hold on one second. <laughs> hey. I'm, I'm not sure if Apple allows uh, Is she okay? words. <laughs> We're a very dog friendly program. At yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is going to be a great blooper. Sorry, sorry. We had uh, we have a, a well. It's been the dog's been with us for three weeks. The dog is not three weeks old, but we just we got a new dog, so oh, settling into uh, the city. Congratulations! Thank you. She's a dream. We thought she was a lab mix because that's how she was sold to us. But she is a German short haired pointer. But she's all chocolate brown except for that. A tuft of multicolored hair on the chest, which is the German short-haired pointer aspect of her. Oh, wow. So Very deeply cool. affectionate. She wants to play with everyone. It is problematic. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. <laughs>